The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The main thing we have to do, in addition to kind of understanding who are the Taliban and where are they going and so forth, but it, it really does focus pretty heavily on that. This is not a country with nuclear weapons. It, it's not a country powerful in trade relationships. It's not a country whose inherent power challenges us in some way beyond its capacity to be a safe haven or an ungoverned space where terrorists can puddle up and plot. So it's, it's a focused mission, and I think that helps as well. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 3rd, 2021. Many questions involving intelligence and Afghanistan have come up in the past few weeks. Did intelligence prepare policymakers for the rapid collapse of the Afghan forces and the Taliban's taking of the capital? How unusual is it for a CIA director to visit a de facto war zone, in this case, Bill Burns, to travel to Kabul to meet with Taliban leaders? What's the context for intelligence sharing with the Taliban? To tackle these issues, we got the intelligence leaders band back together. Sue Gordon, for two years during the Trump administration, was the principal deputy director of national intelligence after decades of service at the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. John McLaughlin served as the acting director of Central Intelligence and the deputy director during the George W. Bush presidency after a career as an analyst manager, and executive in the CIA. We talked about these questions and more in this, the Lawfare Podcast, September 3rd, Sue Gordon and John McLaughlin on intelligence and the Afghanistan withdrawal. To start out, thank you both for coming back. Seems we're getting the band back together on a monthly basis now to talk about some urgent issue relating to intelligence. I'd like to not focus just on the last few days or the last few weeks. We will get there, but I'd like to take a quick look at the last 20 plus years and get each of your impressions of how the intelligence apparatus has worked to collect intelligence, analyze intelligence, disseminate intelligence to policymakers on Afghanistan in a general way across that long period of time with perhaps many analysts working on that account with sustained high-level policymaker attention by far longer than most of the policymakers they have worked with. 
Sue, why don't you start us off and characterize, if you can, your impression of intelligence and the entire Afghanistan problem set that we as a country have been dealing with for so long? Uh, Well, one, thanks for having me. What a great question. So I think the intelligence community's role in Afghanistan is, how do I say it's complete? You know, we were among the first to go in-country operationally. And then as the U.S. built out its presence, as it worked not only various missions, but also affected various policies, the intelligence community was both on the ground and providing the independent assessments that you expect of it. So so this is one where from the beginning to the last moment, and I will tell the listeners, it won't stop just because our presence stopped, have been part of this story. My top line view is the intelligence community has always been particularly clear-eyed about the situation in Afghanistan, and that because of the inherent tension that is always present between clear-eyed assessments of intelligence officers running up against the intention and the objectives of the policy community, those assessments have been well-tested, well-honed, and well-supported over time. So my first point is we've been there throughout that we have been we, I still can't extract myself. <laughs> they have been clear-eyed and they have been tested. It'll be a fun rest of the discussion about strengths and weaknesses of that and whether they were always listened to. But I think it's a role that has been important and has been true. As a quick follow-up to that, in a general sense, again, with military officers and with policymakers below the political appointee level who have had some continuity across the decades, do you get the general sense that the intelligence community widely, the CIA particularly, have generally had the respect of those customers of intelligence or have the tensions, the the usual intel policy frictions between telling it like it is and the the policymaker perhaps subconsciously wanting to hear good news. Do do you think overall it's been a good and productive and respectful relationship, or do you think it has been more contentious than not? Yeah, I'll give a short answer and then turn it over to John. I think it has been incredibly contentious because of the difficulty and because of exactly what you said is that when policies always want to be successful. Operations always want to be successful. And there is always this rub between those pesky people who are presenting inconvenient assessments, running into people who say, but we're on the ground, we know what we're doing, and you you don't quite see it. And so I think it's always been contentious. But again, I think it's one where the intelligence community has stood its ground which is really important. Whether it always carried the day, that's a different issue, but always stood its ground. I, I, my sense is that it has. 
John, you cut your teeth in the intelligence analysis business in part during the Vietnam era, where some of that same dynamic Sue just mentioned between the boots on the ground, I I know what it's like here better than you analysts uh, looking at information from afar. And I'm wondering, with with that in mind, how, how would you characterize the overall intelligence approach to Afghanistan and its relationship with policymakers and warfighters during this period? Actually, David, I think Sue said that perfectly. I wouldn't change a word. Now, admittedly, Sue was in government longer in in more recent period than I was, but it it echoes what I experienced and also what I have heard, you know, from former colleagues when they've been reminiscing or emoting about it. The Vietnam comparison is interesting because when, when I arrived in Vietnam in 1968, about two months after the Tet Offensive, intelligence officers there would come up to me and say, we, we actually tried to get the word out that the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong are much stronger than anyone in the military expected. Mm-hmm. And we had a hell of a time getting that message out and across and getting any agreement to it. That's all pretty well documented publicly. You know, Books have been written about it and a lot of intelligence articles have been cleared on it declassified. So there is always this tension. As it turns out, in that case, the intelligence was correct. The adversary in Vietnam was much stronger than anyone other than the intelligence community believed. And I I think that's a a constant dynamic uh, that runs through these kinds of relationships. And as I say, Sue said that exactly right. The one thing I would add to it Well, I would just also frame it a little bit and say that everyone in the process, whether we're talking about the military on the ground or the intelligence people who are looking at this, seeking to be objective and clear-eyed, I just add that everyone is trying to do the right thing. It's not as though, you know, one side is trying to beat the other side up. Everyone is coming from a, you know, from a different perspective and a different platform and it isn't that you are surprised by friction that occurs. What you have to watch is how does that friction work itself out? And what is the product of that uh, uh, friction? Uh, history will tell us what it has been or not in the case of uh, Afghanistan. The one, the one little point I would add uh, to what Sue said about the origins of all of this is that the CIA's involvement here has been so deep for so long. Recall, of course, the CIA was running a covert action program in Afghanistan in the 1980s when the Soviets were there uh, with the aim, with the support of the Reagan administration, to put pressure on the Soviets to get out. So the involvement there was deep and ultimately successful in helping to propel the Soviets out. Then throughout that period of the 90s, the CIA continued to pay attention to Afghanistan And in the years before 9-11, in the two years before 9-11, teams from the CIA were in Afghanistan on at least five occasions, restoring, building relationships with that part of the anti-Taliban population called the Northern Alliance, mostly Tajik-based, so that when 9-11 occurred, we had the human infrastructure and the relationships to go in there, as Sue said, very quickly. Our teams were on the ground in Afghanistan 15 days after the president said, go get this done. And 
in the early years, and and you know my time in government ends early two thousand five. What I recall is the CIA was engaged in everything from counterterrorism to, for a period of time, what I would call civic action. That mm-hmm. is building wells and uh, helping with medical facilities and schools, in part because the U.S. government was late to come to Afghanistan with civic action teams that were not intelligence-based. And, and, and then it transitioned from there to what ensued after that. Well, on that foundation, that really does set the stage for what is now, you know, 20 years of of policy after September 11th in particular, and 20 years of intelligence assessments going to policymakers, but also reaching the public in part through the annual or almost always annual worldwide threat testimony that both of you have contributed to and been a part of before. And I found it interesting that in the most recent annual threat assessment, which was, I believe, in April of this year, that the new director of national intelligence, Admiral Haynes, mentioned that, you know, Afghanistan was on the list. Afghanistan was was something that was in that testimony, but it was not highlighted as a particularly important item. That is, it wasn't placed at the top of any list, and it did not receive extensive attention as part of the document. But there were some some claims that do ring true when you look back from April to now. And I'm thinking in particular of the line, the Taliban is likely to make gains on the battlefield, and the Afghan government will struggle to hold the Taliban at bay if the coalition withdraws support. And Sue, back to, to you first. When you hear that line, it, it certainly seems prescient. It seems like the analysts, even in a one line inside an unclassified document being presented for public consumption, that they got the general contour right, even if there was not a point prediction being made. What do you think of the, the public-facing Afghan analysis that has happened since the beginning of the year? And do you think that the public side prepared the Congress and the American people for the eventualities that we saw? As I said, I think intelligence has a pretty clear view. The statement that you read for the annual threat assessment is consistent with, I mean, it has some coloration based on the current moment, but it's consistent with the assessments that have been made most recently. This is a Difficult environment, U.S. presence makes a difference. U.S. presence lent strength and opportunity, and the absence of U.S. presence was always going to be difficult. So I I think that's a pretty consistent theme, again, with some temporal variation to it. And for the listeners, there is work going on every day behind the scenes. You you get the public statements, but I don't think there's a day that the analysts aren't working to know more, assess more clearly, regardless of what comes out in the press. So one, mm-hmm. I think that top line is pretty consistent. Two, don't be thinking that people weren't working every day. But when we get to talking about what has happened this year and how you got from that general statement, which 
feels like the kind of intelligence warning that when something actually happens, both seems present and insufficient. I think things happened over the year that people could have recognized would be making the situation worse, even though the situation hasn't changed. And, and that is what happens on the day you say you're going to leave. What happens to the sources that you had? What happens to the forces that have been working with you once they know that you're not going to stay? And the situation changes and degrades. And I suspect all those things were being made clear. John, I, I don't want to get into the specifics and uh, second-guessing what actually was said in classified intelligence assessments. That's a, a fool's game. But I do want to point you to what the New York Times reported going back a couple of weeks ago, but they've updated the story right up to today in reporting that, in fact, since July, intelligence agencies have predicted that the Taliban, you know, if the Taliban were to start seizing cities, that there could be a cascading collapse that, in the language of the New York Times write-up, that could happen rapidly and that Afghan security forces were at a high risk of falling apart. Now, putting aside the question of whether that is the actual language of, of assessments that we do not have, but I saw that characterization of them as a cascading collapse could happen. And I can see the analyst's mindset saying, this is a warning function. I want to point out the possibility of this, which we don't have anything specific for perhaps, but I, I need to highlight that this is a distinct possibility. And I can also understand a reader seeing something if it in fact said could and rolling her eyes at it and saying, well, a lot of things could happen. You're not actually helping me. And it takes me back to times when I'm sure I, you know, as a young analyst wrote some intelligence products and you would do the senior review on them before they went into the PDB and you would roll your eyes at this this kid who thought that uh, he was giving wisdom to policymakers by pointing out coulds and mights and maybes. I'm hoping you can give some flavor to that. How useful is it to have warning documents that have some of that possibility raising language and how dissatisfying in your experience is it for policymakers to get that and later on essentially be told, we warned you? Yeah. Well, first off, we're seeing in that New York Times report a snapshot of something that might have been said at some point. Mm -hmm. I recall that report. And of course, we haven't read that intelligence, but it's possible that if one could look what was said before that was that judgment was made and what was said two days after and a week after and a week after, right. that would give you a real sense for what the policymaker, the decision maker is, is hearing uh, and absorbing over time. The hardest thing in the intelligence world is to perceive and document incremental change, things that are occurring a little bit at a time, because when you are surprised by something that happens suddenly, it usually is because you haven't documented the little changes that have gone on and achieved critical mass and arrived at some tipping point. A good case would be the Arab Spring. I'm sure that intelligence documented the building pressures in the Arab world uh, for years. 
But who would know that a fruit seller would set himself on fire in, mm-hmm. you know, 2010 mm-hmm. and ignite, uh, literally, a revolution across the Middle East? So I think it's important that intelligence say things like that to indicate that if you don't say that, you're you're indicating that things are static. But you're by saying something like that, you're saying this is a dynamic situation. It it is moving, and if you say that every day in exactly that language, no, that's not satisfying to people. That relationship, but but if you're documenting it over time, a trend is clear. And, you know, we struggle to understand why exactly the Afghan security forces collapsed as quickly as they did. And we will eventually, everyone will analyze this for years, as we've discussed. My hunch is, I wrote an article on this, uh, on, on why I think they were collapsing, and it was based purely on just what's known publicly. Right. And I, I, I took it really from my experience in Vietnam, where essentially my point was, armies don't rise or fall. They don't have strength or no strength on the basis of their training and equipment. That is almost irrelevant in the face of things like their respect for the government they're supporting their mm-hmm. faith in the future and their sense that they're not surrounded by corruption. So I, I look back to Vietnam and courage has very little to do with it. I, I work with many courageous South Vietnamese soldiers, but they also knew that there was rampant corruption in their government and that it was a shaky affair and that what were they fighting for in the end? Because in the end, people have to understand, we talk about war as it's as if it's some abstraction. War is about risking your life, your life, your personal life, to achieve some objective. You're never really protected from losing your life. Uh, you and your buddies are trying to preserve each other's lives, but you are always at risk. It takes a lot of faith to put people in that position and expect them to perform as though they are fearless. And so I think whatever happened in, and uh, I've heard Ryan Crocker, a veteran ambassador, both to Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, make the point that he thinks that this rampant corruption in Afghanistan, which is, which is endemic and societal, it's it, it's not as though we brought it in. It's just part of many developed society, developing societies and our own society in some respects. But that rampant corruption, uh, he thought, was the key to why the system collapsed as quickly as it did. It's a question of whether you believe deeply in what you're doing and whether you're prepared to risk your life to preserve it and keep it. Sue, let me turn to you on a related issue of uh, the intelligence provided to policymakers in a in a general sense observers often will look back at a foreign policy crisis and and try to determine the role of intelligence and they will focus almost exclusively on whether the intelligence was for lack of a better word accurate did it predict what happened did it give policymakers insight into what happened if they're a little more nuanced, they'll get to whether the intelligence was also objective. That is, if there was a problem with accuracy, was that due to a bias, either blatant politicization or something more subtle? Rarely do they get to the third leg, which is, was the intelligence timely? 
And it's interesting to me that in the reporting about this intelligence in the last several weeks and months, that that issue actually has come up, which is supposedly intelligence provided in July, laying out these growing risks to the capital and noting the fragility of the Afghan government if the Taliban were to make some advances. But of course, key decisions having to do with the Afghanistan withdrawal were made before July. And I'm hoping you can give us some context for the importance of timely intelligence in the decision-making process at each level from the White House on down into the national security bureaucracies? It's a great, great question. I think history is replete with examples of missing the temporal moment or mark. Yeah. Because knowing a perfect answer after a decision has been made is the same as not knowing the answer. And having too general a perspective is equally non-helpful. So the work of good craft, which is having a good foundation for the assessment you make, making sure that you understand your sources, that you understand the confidence you have in not only the material, but the source that provides it, that you have good craft behind it, and then making sure that it is delivered in a way that is useful for the decision is the discipline of intelligence. Again, my experience with Afghanistan is the intelligence community has worked assiduously over 20 years, in part because of the tension we talked about, to have not only good foundation, good craft, and good responses at the right time, because it has been so contentious isn't quite the right word, but so many decisions being made. So I think this is a case where the intelligence community has been on its mark of delivering the best it had. Now to John's last point that he made about assessments that say something could happen, and his comment that you usually are most successful when you look at all the little moments. The most helpful thing that would have been made for decision makers if that assessment were provided, that something could, that it could fall faster, would be, all right, what is the information we need to collect to know whether that is actually going to happen? And not stopping at the possibility, but actually driving to know what the observables in direction will Mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. And that's what we don't know. I again will say, as our national intention to leave becomes more apparent, as our presence draws down, the opportunity to find that information that will add fidelity is diminishing as well. So it it actually kind of is additive in terms of difficulty rather than any malfeasance or inattention to the job. Yep. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. John, I'd like to turn to a different angle of the intelligence story here. There was a report last week that... President Biden sent the CIA director, Bill Burns, to the Afghan capital to meet with the Taliban leadership. And that's certainly interesting. There's no shortage of diplomats in the U.S. Foreign Service or senior policymaking officials who could have had those discussions with Taliban leaders. And it's certainly common for CIA directors. You know this from when you were acting director and deputy director. You made countless trips overseas to meet with allies to perform liaison with your counterparts in other intelligence services. But it's certainly less common to do so with people overseas who are less than friends and, in fact, in the past have been combat enemies. One of the more prominent examples I can think of to place this in context is when you were deputy director and George Tenet was essentially playing a lead negotiation role, bringing together Palestinians and Israelis in a way that usually was reserved for diplomats. And I'm hoping with that context, you can tell us what you think of this CIA director flying into a rapidly devolving situation and talking to the Taliban, trying to get some action at the airport, presumably to get as many evacuees out as possible. Yeah, I'll go directly to that question in a second, David, but I wanted to add one more thing to what Sue was saying about the merit of assessments that say something could happen without having looked at all of that intelligence. It is almost always the case that that is followed by or, or accompanied by something that says it could happen if. In other words, in the intelligence business, there are a couple of phrases that are almost forbidden one of them is, it remains to be seen. You never say that. You never say that. I mean, it just struck out immediately. And another one is a, a could that just stands alone without any qualifier. Or, you know, people who put their final, as Sue did this in her job and I did, when you put your final imprimatur of the community on it, you, you don't want to send that forward and like that. So we don't know exactly what was said, but almost certainly people mm-hmm. said, well, if sub sub So what are the conditions that would lead to that? So going to your question, though, yeah, this is done from time to time. I wouldn't say it's common, but it's done from time to time where a CIA director or another official of the intelligence community, it could be the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, is deployed somewhere to have a quiet conversation with someone below the sight line on the theory that we are speaking non-politically here. We are talking interests. And we're talking pragmatically, and we're talking in a way that we're not going to share with anyone else. There's, uh, regrettably, somehow it leaked that Director Burns had done this. That's not the intention. Uh, 
The intention is to do this in a way that is profitable by virtue of conveying a message to someone and bringing back a reaction without having to adjudicate that in, in, in a public setting so that you can understand where are they coming from, where's the trade space, what are we working with here. I can think of instances um, in, in my time I was deployed to, you mentioned sometimes going to places where you're not particularly friendly. I was deployed mm-hmm. to Moscow a couple of times to deliver a message about something that was upsetting to us in Russian behavior. And they listened, I think, productively and in some cases uh, receptively uh, in a way that they can in the intelligence channel because, again, there's no well, – let me put it – there's less issue of face involved as there is in a public setting. Right. They don't have to prove right. anything. You can really just talk down and dirty and the interests that are involved. Yeah, I remember sitting in the Lubyanka once having tea with a statue of Felix Dzerzhinsky looking over my shoulder. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, one of those moments you remember. Yeah. And yeah. uh, and these are sometimes productive visits, and you do them with allies as well, where you may want cooperation in a situation where even with allies, there's some sort of tension that simply doesn't exist in the intelligence channel because there you can talk in a professional way without any politics involved. Now, Director Burns going to see the Taliban, mm-hmm. that's a little different too because we're not talking – it's not a it's not an embassy cocktail party that he went to uh, it's far not from it. uh, far from it it was uh, i don't know where he met him exactly but let me say this about director burns he was involved in the iran negotiations to leading up to the 2015 mm-hmm. nuclear mm-hmm. reduction agreement with iran when he was in the state department and so he's no stranger to this under the uh, radar diplomacy. And when I heard that he had gone there, I thought he's exactly the right person to send because he's, as a State Department veteran, former ambassador, uh, those who know him would say, you know, he's a master diplomat. And he would have instincts about how to talk to someone without setting off a counterproductive reaction on their part. And we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. what the result of that was. I, I wouldn't believe anything I saw in the media on that. And that's a great point. You know, being with his background as a decorated career foreign service officer, he's probably better prepared than perhaps any uh, director of the CIA in history to play this quasi-diplomatic role. Sue, what are your reflections on the CIA director being tasked uh, with this particular job? Well, I think I'm in complete agreement with John. I, I might say less completely and more succinctly, and that is we ought to have those kinds of discussions. One of the great instruments of national security is the ability to have a conversation with almost anyone below the level of politics and policy so that you can have a constant channel by which you can send messages directly that are reality-based without the glare of a spotlight where everyone has to answer to a different agenda or master. So I think this is one of the most important, least understood, and thankfully mostly least often displayed 
aspects of national security. I agree with John, the Taliban is a little bit different, but the intention is the same, is the ability to communicate directly, whether it works out exactly as you expect, but it is often your best chance to be incredibly clear and gain insight that you might not if it were a more public channel. Sure. Let me get a little more granular here because we also learned last week that General McKenzie, the commander of CENTCOM, revealed that during the withdrawal last week that there was intelligence sharing with the Taliban on issues of what he said involved a common purpose. He mentioned, of course, that versions of this information that was provided uh, with the Taliban were, in a sense, generalized or perhaps dumbed down a bit. But this was a bit of a shock to some people who said, wait a minute, the Taliban themselves have been a target of intelligence collection for some 25 years. And you're actually sharing sensitive intelligence with the Taliban during this withdrawal. And I was hoping you could give some context, uh, Sue, and, and then John, both of you, for, without giving, of course, any examples that are not suitable to be released, but the fact of sharing intelligence with people who are themselves perhaps targets of intelligence collection and certainly are not people that are normally included in the relatively long list of allies and friendly governments, you're sharing intelligence with someone who has a past practice of trying to kill Americans. How unusual is that in your experience to have that kind of intelligence sharing, even if on a limited basis? So first, I would say the best examples of this are the 20-year war on terror, Mm -hmm. where one of the elements of success was our ability collectively to share information, not just with those whom we trust, but those with whom we had periodically shared interests. And there are periodic statements in the press of times that we will share information with Russia, whom on any other day is adversarial, but for some purposes, um, you share that information. So The best example of doing this with other than your most trusted partner has been the war on terror. I think if you put it in this moment, this moment in time at the evacuation, the government has essentially fallen. The Taliban has control. In the micro of the moment, you and the Taliban have shared interests. You're trying Mm -hmm. to leave and they want you to leave. As you're trying to exit, you need someone or you're trying to see if you can have some commitment to achieve your shared objective. And remember that in the rough and tumble world of Afghanistan, while the Taliban may have control, there's also ISIS-K who has different agendas, not just anti-US, but anti-Taliban. There's Al-Qaeda. And so... In the moment, it is absolutely conceivable as you're trying to achieve your objective, you do information sharing with the party that can most help you achieve your objective. Don't for a second think that that means you willy-nilly do sharing, but 
when you're in that moment, you will make decisions about what is in your best interest. And in this case, the Taliban may have been the one who was most able to deliver what we most needed. Right on. John? Yeah, well, you know, Lord Palmerston, the uh, British statesman <laughs> many decades ago, once said that, um, you know, our friends and our enemies sometimes change. Only our interests are eternal. And I think that's what governs this sort of thing, that you find um, you find somewhere where there's a Venn diagram that has your interests overlapping, even though you may be poles apart on something else. And uh, I think that's what was going on here. And also it underlines another point that um, I think is worth thinking about and on which we'll need much more data. And that is, who, who are the Taliban these days exactly? And they obviously are trying. We, we, we won't know for a long time whether genuinely or for propaganda purposes, they are trying to suggest to the world that they're not the Taliban that we overthrew in 2001. Maybe they are. It's appropriate to be skeptical. On the other hand, if they're trying to make that point, you can understand why they might want to demonstrate a bit of uh, fidelity to this goal of uh, working with us. And maybe they're trying to see where it goes too. I mean, in the end, we have to be skeptical of the Taliban and we have to expect the worst. But on the other hand, if we are hoping for the best for the Afghan people, that is a continuation of the good things we did there, the education of children, the improved medical care, the freer press, we can't expect all of that to continue. But if we're hoping for some of that to be preserved, part of our job is to see if it's possible to maneuver the Taliban in that direction or strengthen whatever gossamer impulses may exist in that right. organization right. on in some quarter uh you know because there have been some academics who've tromped around there and not to make this academic but there have been some researchers who've tromped around in the districts over there and, and come back and said taliban aren't all that different from they used to be except some of them are there are some commanders are kind of aware that they can't just beat people up that that's not the way to govern although a lot of them are still going to beat people up. So I'm just suggesting this is a dynamic situation in which we need to maybe expect the worst, but keep our eyes open for possible openings that would lead to a maybe a, a better situation. And so this kind of relationship that we've talked about, a CIA director meeting with one of them, and perhaps after that meeting, the Taliban person saying, you know, that wasn't a bad guy. I don't know what he said, but I'm guessing he might have said that. You know, respect carries a lot of weight among adversaries. It's odd. Notice mm -hmm. Biden's last meeting, first meeting with Putin. Uh, of course, uh, on the one hand, he conveyed contempt for Putin. Remember, at one point, he called him a killer. Right. But in that meeting in Europe, he treated him with respect. And he treated him as a serious person. And if you look at what Putin said in Russia when he went back, he was giddy about Biden. He couldn't stop talking about what a um, an impressive person he was. Why? He got a little respect. So you got to be careful respecting people who want to kill you, like the Taliban. But I just say that 
in the end, you know, even people driven by deep ideological conviction, mm-hmm. counter to yours, are still human beings at some level, you, you know? Right. And right. so I keep that dimension of all of this in sight as we talk about large geopolitical movements and maps and things. Along those lines, I do wonder now whether a principle that generally applies to U.S. citizens and to friendly governments, uh, which is the duty to warn, how, how does that apply here? The idea being that if a, a credible, reliably reported threat comes in that's judged to be of some quality that purports to a, a threat to someone's life, there is the sense of a duty to warn, which often comes up in the terrorist context to issue a public, even if it necessarily vague warning about the potential for an attack in a particular area or during a particular holiday season. Does that duty to warn extend to something like the Islamic State in Khorasan, as they call themselves, having a direct threat to a Taliban leader at a time when we're trying to cooperate with the Taliban to evacuate Americans? Again, I I think it comes down to, one, we made a decision, right? We made a decision that we were going to end our participation on the ground in Afghanistan. And our interest is in, at that moment, getting our people home safely. That's our interest. The people who can most help us with that interest. Stability at the point of departure is in our interest. And so I think, uh, one, we have no idea what the fidelity of the threat information was. But two, I just think it comes down to, at that moment, how do we best achieve our aims? I I think this is the question that's going to be asked going forward is, now that we've made this decision, how much say do we have about what happens after? What's our plan? What's our plan for regional stability? What's our plan for counterterrorism? Because it won't be able to be affected in the same way. And we will have less say over what happens in Afghanistan because we have exited. So I think there you almost have to separate the two. On that moment, it was how do we get our people out most effectively and safely? And you do what you need to do that day. And then we need to go forward and figure out what are we going to do next to achieve the national interests that are still in play regionally, even though we've chosen not to affect them on the ground in the manner that we had. Yeah, if I could add to that, David, I think I would say to your to our listeners, just be absolutely positive that this is one of the things, the question you've asked, how essentially how do we deal with the Taliban? Do we deal with them in the way we deal with other forces that have been adversarial. Just be sure that that's going to be a dominant discussion in the national security meetings in the Biden administration, in the principles meetings and so forth. And and if if I were running them, uh, the first question I would ask in a meeting and task out papers for people to reflect on this and bring to the meeting would be, how do we preserve in Afghanistan the good things we did? I mean, is there a way? And what would have to be done to preserve that? And the reason that's important is because of the 20-year investment 
in Blood and Treasure, and because for Americans wondering, what did we accomplish there? I mean, one school of thought that we will hear vocally expressed in now and in the coming days is, well, it was all for nothing. Well, we don't know that yet. How could we make it something other than all for nothing? How could we preserve or or strengthen the factors and forces that would help preserve some of the good things we did there? Because that would make our effort there more meaningful as we look back on it. You know, again, comparing it to Vietnam, there was nothing to preserve when we left. Uh, Someone asked that question, it certainly wasn't answered. Now, Vietnam has turned into quite a wonderful country, and, and we have a relationship with them again, a good one. But we had not a lot left to preserve there when we left, and there's stuff to preserve You know, uh, this is a a point I've made and that I've started to hear others making recently is that the Afghanistan that Taliban come back to is a different Afghanistan in some respects. The culture is probably the same. It's still a tribal culture. What matters most is taking care, if you're the tribal leader, of your people materially and otherwise. So it's it's not a federal culture. It's not, not like us. And the values are different and so forth. But on the other hand, the median age is something like 25. Uh, 75% of the people in the country have been born sometime in the last 25 years. And Mm -hmm. the vast majority of the country has known nothing other than what we brought there, for better or for worse, the good parts and the bad parts. But some of it was pretty good, in the opinion of many Afghans. Why were so many trying to leave, other than those who worked with us? And so that should be a goal is how do we strengthen the chances of some of that surviving so that what we did was in everyone's view, in part, at least worth, worth all of that effort. Yeah. Just if I can jump in real quick, David, on that in a a moment of personal privilege, I think this is being said more and more. There is no doubt, especially for the women and men that served there, that for every day of their 20 years, they made a difference. It might be small, maybe in someone's life. Maybe it's giving women and children an opening that they wouldn't have had. Maybe it's giving people a recognition of the life they can. So absolutely, we made a difference. And our women and men, the women and men in the armed forces and in national security and diplomacy are willing to do that every time the nation calls. I think the question for the historians will be, was it worth it? And the work of us, of the national security community going forward is, how do we still advance those interests? But for those who were there, as the mother of three Marines, they should all know it mattered on every single day. Absolutely. And I would say both both you, John, and you, Sue, you've both mentioned that preserving what's there and honoring their sacrifices and the things they did to improve a a tough situation, that that will be inherently topic of many principals committee, deputies committee meetings, and others in order to inform those policymaker discussions. It's helpful to have really good intelligence. 
But Bill Burns made it very clear to Congress earlier this year, something that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. He said, when the time comes for the U.S. military to withdraw, the United States government's ability to collect and act on threats will diminish. That's simply a fact. Now, it seems like we're going to go from whatever scale you have, from 100 to near zero when it comes to intelligence collection in Afghanistan because of this withdrawal. But I also note that there are plenty of places around the world where the United States does not have the military footprint and the friendly government that we had until very recently in Afghanistan. And you know, we do some pretty exquisite collection in a lot of those places. How much do you think the withdrawal, and I'll hit you first, Sue, and then we'll end with John's thoughts on this. How much do you think there will be a cliff in intelligence collection? And how much do you think we are still able to do despite the challenges of this withdrawal? It will be a significant loss. One of the reasons for presence is you need to be where the information is that give you insight. And that is not always accessible from distance today. So it it's going to be a loss. But over its history, the intelligence community has found a way to develop new capabilities in environments where the capabilities they had were insufficient. Mm-hmm. We can think, John, you were right in the throes of when our insights into North Korea were almost non-existent, and then the community turned to finding ways to have insight. So make no mistake, especially in some of the most dangerous, fraught, more tribal, less governmentally organized environments, the lack of physical, personal presence where the information that you need is present is going to be a loss. But I believe in us. Yeah. John, let's close out with your thoughts on the future of intelligence and its ability to inform those important policy discussions going forward. Well, uh, first, it's important to say we know vastly more about Afghanistan now than we did in 2001. Although I, I would go back to the first question you asked and say to listeners, In 2001, the CIA knew more about Afghanistan then than almost anyone in Washington. We had something like between 70 and 100 sources on the ground before 9-11 in Afghanistan. And so Sue is right. It will be more difficult, but the intelligence community has a record of having to cope with this in a lot of other places. Some of them, in many respects, vastly more dangerous than Afghanistan. So second point I'd make is that in addition today, we have very impressive technical collection sources that will be um, important and will really help our ability to maintain a picture. Bottom line is it's always better to be on the ground there. And the other thing is, you know, if we have allies who are on the ground there, partners diplomatically and otherwise, we will gain from their knowledge as well. Again, you have to ask, what is it we're trying to collect there? And you have to go back to the reason we went there. In the end, the reason we went there was to prevent another 9-11 and to make sure the homeland was not attacked and to make sure that we did not have to 
worry as much as we were about attacking our interests in other parts of the world, including in allied countries and throughout the Middle East. And we have put a pretty significant dent in that. And so when you're thinking about what is it we have to do, that's the main thing we have to do in addition to kind of understanding who are the Taliban and where are they going and so forth. But it, it really does focus pretty heavily on that. This is not a country with nuclear weapons. It, it's not a country powerful in trade relationships. It's not a country whose inherent power challenges us in some way beyond its capacity to be a safe haven or an ungoverned space where terrorists can puddle up and plot. Sure. So it's it's a focused mission, and I think that helps as well. So I don't, I don't want to falsely reassure people, but I want to agree with Sue's point that we know how to do this. Right. Notice we're both saying we. We can't help ourselves. <laughs> right. I'll get over it at some point, John, yeah, or maybe no, not. No, no, you won't. <laughs> well, Sue and John, uh, something tells me that this will uh, not be the last time, uh, perhaps even this year, that the, the three of us talk about intelligence-related issues. So I will say we will not put this to a close today. We will merely press pause until the next time. <laughs> Thank you both for joining me again. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Don't forget to share the podcast, rate the podcast, and tell your friends about the podcast. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo Studios was our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.